Let me pray for us. That is your word. I believe that the words just read to us are a part of a holer book called the Bible, where God, in your amazing love, you have not left us without a witness. You have left us with your words, words of truth, words that are not a fairy tale, but words that change, words that are living and active, and words that from beginning to end point to one hero of the universe, and his name is Jesus. And so, Father, all that we do And this moment is so that He would be loved and treasured and adored and pursued and embraced and shared and proclaimed. He would be emulated in how we love. Father, this is for Your glory. Today is about Your power. Because you did what you said you were going to do. And so, Father, we ask by your amazing might and your infinite love that you would change us today. Help us to see Jesus. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's watch this together. fearless 
and his love for us is fierce. He is the spotless one who was sacrificed for all of humanity. That's who we come to worship. That's why we gather. We believe there is hope in the midst of pain. We believe there is a sense that even though the world is broken and in shambles around us, even though our hearts are up and down, there is a hope that can transcend our circumstances. Jesus says to us, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I've overcome the world. The resurrection that we celebrate today says that death doesn't get the final word. It says that brokenness doesn't get to be the end of the story. The resurrection, Jesus being alive, says that death has been defeated. Sin doesn't get the power over our lives that sometimes we act as if it has. And so we come and we believe that Jesus is alive God did keep His Word, and His Son has been risen. And so there is hope. There is hope today. He's the one we've come to worship. But I know there's for many, whether you've been a follower of Jesus for many years, or whether you are still skeptical, you're still questioning, you're still wondering, should I really give my whole heart, every part of me, surrender? Because that's the call. The call is not a religion. The call is not a Sunday morning. The call is everything. All chips in, every part of the life surrendered to Him. No matter where you are, you ask this question many times. How do I know I can trust Him? How do I know I can trust Him in this? How do I know I can trust Him when my plans fail? When people I love hurt me or are hurting? How do I know I can trust Him? Isn't it amazing sometimes when people are able to kind of call something before it happens and then it happens? One of my favorite stories growing up as a kid was my my grandmother. I called her Nana. She loved baseball. The baseball season began this year, and although I'm not a massive baseball fan, I think it's a little slow to watch. I played it all growing up, but I'll never forget the story that was told, and it's a true story, a story in... October 1st, 1932, it was the World Series. It was the fifth inning of Game 3, and Babe Ruth was up to bat. And he takes his stand and he points to center field. And upon the proceeding pitch, he then jacks a home run exactly where he pointed, and it is known as one of the most famous home runs in baseball history. And part of it was just this amazing sense of he was able to call it before it happened. 
Now, let's be clear. As much as we want to believe, there was no certainty that he was going to be able to knock that thing out. None at all. He was pretty hopeful, but there was just no certainty. But when Jesus was predicted to rise from the dead, not just hundreds, but thousands of years before he even came on the scene, this was not good wishing. This was not, I really hope it works out. This was not just betting the odds. The odds are actually good. No, this was a certainty declared and that if it did not happen, God put all of his credit and all of his name and all of his reputation upon the fact, will this happen or not? And he says, my word hangs upon this truth that my son The Messiah, the Savior of the world will come and He will suffer a death He does not deserve. He will be placed in the lot as sinners, although He will have never sinned. And He will rise from the dead on the third day. And His entire reputation was staked upon that. Far more than a hopeful point in center field, this is, everything is riding on this. How do we know that he can be trusted, it is because he kept his word. Easter is the declaration that he did it. He did what he said he was going to do and that he is alive. Jesus is alive. He did it. And let's look at Luke chapter 24. We are in a series in the book of Luke. We've got two more sermons. For those of you who are on the scene for the first time here at Treasure in Christ Church, we've actually been in this book for over a year and a half. And two more sermons. It's like the the end of the marathon. And we find ourselves in Luke 24. And we're going to go all the way to verses, we're going to go 1 to 34, or 35 today. But let's look at what Luke 24 says. It was just read to us by King, and it says, on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb taking spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. He did what he said he was going to do. He's alive. Death could not hold him. The stone was rolled away. And it says, verse 3, But when those who went to cover his body in spices, it says, But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. He is not here. He is, what? Risen. That's right. And love too. Verse 4, While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men came to explain. You know, they're thinking, where'd he go? Two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. We know from other books of the Scriptures these two men were angels. Verse 5, As they were frightened and bowed their face to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Do you remember? Do you remember how he told you 
while he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. He did it. He did what he said he was going to do and he's alive. And he's asking them to remember. Now, if this were a farce, if this were just a master trick of illusion, there's no way he would have tried to predict and been able to control all the circumstances that led up to this point. The elders and the chief priests, he says, in the book of Luke, he says that the elders and the chief priests would come against him. He says in Luke chapter 9, verse 22, that he must suffer at their hands. There's no way he was going to be able to make them do what he wanted them to do unless he was more than just a good man, more than just a prophet. But he was God himself. And those individuals, they crucified him. They mocked him. Even certain prophecies that were required from his side being pierced to the fact that no bones of his were to be broken. He was crucified with two others. And they had their legs broken because they had not died yet. Jesus had died, so Jesus' legs were not broken. This is a thousand-year-old prophecy that had to come true. Jesus was dead. And it still happened. He did what he said he was going to do. He kept his word. Even next week, what we'll begin to see is he appears to hundreds of people. And those hundreds of people were going to be called upon to give their lives for him. And there's no way they would give their lives for an illusion. No way they would give their lives for some false story. They gave their life because they saw him die and they saw him alive. He did what he said he was going to do. He is risen. He even pressed it and said, touch me, because you doubt, touch me. He even came to them and said, here, give me some fish, let me eat. All to prove that he kept his word and he did what he said he was going to do. And you look at verse 6, he says, remember how he told you. The angel said, while he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man, must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified. Stop there. Did you see the word? The word is must. In the original languages, it is necessary. It's got to happen. It says, Jesus, the Son of Man, must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified. Why? Why is this the case? It had to be this way. He had to suffer in the place of sinners. Why? The answer is because over all of history, humanity has proven one thing. They cannot fix themselves. We cannot fix ourselves. It is the narrative of human history 
people over and over trying to be good in order to say that I have it within me to remove all guilt, all shame, to be a good person. I have it within me to fix my problems and the problems of the world. And what has been the narrative is, no, you do not. And even greater than that is, what if you even had the power to fix yourself? The issue is you don't have the power to fix others. Human history has borne the narrative that although we try and although sometimes some people are better than others, the requirement of God is not be better than your neighbor. The requirement of God is to be perfect before a holy God. And we all, including me, including you, including everyone on the planet has fallen short. Everyone. You don't have to be a spiritual person to understand. Everyone has got mess. And that mess is not just what comes at you. That mess is what you choose. Yeah, you might call it a little white lie, but God calls it an offense against Him. You might call it a little lustful look, but God calls it you're trading Him in for some other object or other person. It's treason at the highest level, what we call small. Why did Jesus have to die? Because humanity has been proven over and over again to not be able to fix themselves or to fix the world. We are broken. Beautifully made in His image. But we are sinners by nature and by choice. And the only way sin could be addressed was for Jesus to come and to live the life that we could not live, to be perfect, and then to die the death that we deserved. He must die. So on a covert, operative kind of mission, God Himself puts on flesh and comes to a little small town of Bethlehem and is born as a baby and lives an obscure life for 30 some odd years and then comes onto the scene and declares that he is the son of God and fulfills all over 60 some odd prophecies that say he is the Messiah, the King, the only one who can take away sin and he died like he said he would because he was the only one. The only one who could bear the brunt. This past week um, at my kids' school, they, in, they go to school in South Raleigh. And as they were in school, there was a lockdown. Uh, because there was someone who had committed some crimes that was on the run. <clears throat> and they were known to be in that area. And so the school was in lockdown Very scary thing for everybody kind of involved. There are cops running all over the the campus looking for this individual. And it was interesting as the administration begins to think through it. The uh, principal of the school, a follower of Jesus and a Christian. He begins to talk about how it reminded him. It reminded him of the rescue mission of Jesus himself. Because all attention was focused in that moment. All attention was focused upon protecting these individuals and solving the problem of danger that was at hand. 
Everybody was working in unison. Everybody was going after this individual. It was, everybody was working hard to try to solve this problem. Jesus Christ, he was on this mission. This one soul unified mission to come and to show up on the scene and to do what those little children in that classroom could not do. To defend and to protect those who could not defend and protect themselves. Jesus came. And he came and he had to die. Because the demand for sin, the punishment for sin is death. But it wouldn't, my death wouldn't have done. Because newsflash, I'm messed up like you. Sinful people can't take away the sin of sinful people. It couldn't just be any man. It couldn't just be a man whose good outweighed his bad. It had to be a perfect man. It had to be Jesus himself. He had to die. And so on this mission of love, it was necessary that he suffered at the hands of sinful men and that he was crucified in my place and in yours so that anyone who would say, I cannot fix myself, I need you to rescue me, that they could be saved. You know, I've got problems. And so do you. A few of the things that go rotten in my heart are just really wanting people's approval. I have to pray almost every time I get up here that my aim would be to love and to serve you rather than to impress you. Isn't it just rotten? That I would be up here seeking to make Jesus known and I would really be thinking of me? Isn't that crazy? I was talking to my wife the other day and we've been walking through a lot of counseling things that are happening and people's lives are really hard and there was a temptation because of a lot of time given that there would be some self-pity. And I said, look at how evil it is. That I would take someone else's pain and difficulty and somehow make it about me. Have we ever done that before? On top of that, if I'm doing well and my actions are up here, I feel a sense of confidence and value like my life matters. But if I feel sad or down, if I cannot do good, or if I've really messed up or failed, there's a sense of my life doesn't matter. I'm not valuable. Maybe God, have you left me? What is the answer for all of that mess happening in my heart and that happens in your heart? The perfect Son, the perfect Son of God, Jesus Christ, had to come. It was necessary that he had to die because out of his death, he lives. He lives. When I look at my sin, there is a sense that I have hope in the midst of that, that my mess doesn't characterize me. 
When I look at my sin, I don't have to say any longer that that is my trajectory. It is impossible for me to ever get out of that kind of thinking or that kind of feeling because death has been defeated. It was necessary that he stood in my place, but it was necessary that he got up and that he's alive. And he is alive. He proved it. He did what he said he was going to do. He kept his word. And so now as I stare down the barrel of my own sin, I have hope. Hope not because I can be better the next day, but hope because Jesus Christ is alive. And if I trust in him by simple faith, not by doing really good and being better than my neighbor, by simple faith, he says he comes and he lives inside of me and he changes me from the inside out and he makes me new and he gives me hope day by day. Victory has been won for me and you. That's the message of Easter. Victory is ours. Hope is the trajectory. And oh, how the devil wants us to be fixed upon brokenness and to be so introspective we aren't used. We aren't remembering that we are valuable. The cross is God's unswerving commitment to justice in the midst of sin. Sin had to be punished. Anyone who's ever experienced abuse ever experienced betrayal, ever experienced a sense of deep pain, you know what it's like for the desire for justice. The cross is God's unswerving commitment to the glory of His name and to say, I will be just. But you need to hear this. The cross is not only that unswerving commitment to justice, but it is His immovable trajectory. Even though sin was coming at Him and others tried to thwart it, it was the unmovable trajectory that says, you and you and you and you are valuable to me and I love you. He could not be moved off of that storyline. He could not be thwarted in telling us that we are precious in His sight and that He loves us. He gave His only life, His only Son for us. So, when you collide with pain, and you will, never forget the cross. Justice will come in God's time to those where justice is required. But the cross communicates, I love you. And although you might not understand everything, the commitment is, His love is sure. His love is sure. But you're like, why? Why do we have to walk through such pain? Why do things have to be so difficult? Parents understand this. Imagine you have a little toddler. Let's take them before they can walk. And as this child begins to crawl and start trying to balance up on all fours, you say, no, 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 don't do that. Just get on my back. Set the kid on your back. And you crawl around. And you go to the outlet that they wanted to put their finger in. And you crawl over to the table and things like that. And so then you set the child where they need to go. And then you go on with life. Oh, and then they, they get down and, and they're about ready to take that next crawl. No, 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 no. Here, get on my back. Just let me do it for you. Eventually. When they're about 15, it's going to get a little awkward. Why is it going to get a little awkward? 
Because you've done everything for them and they haven't exercised the muscles that were required in order to learn how to crawl and then eventually to kind of stammer and learn how to walk and then fall down and get back up. Parents have to let the child build up muscle. And that's hard. I know you don't remember it, but it was hard for you. It hurt. It's necessary that the child has to fall down at times in order to learn how to even get back up. It's muscle memory. It's, it's learning how to strengthen the legs. It's learning how to balance. You can't do that for them. Parents understand. Sometimes our faith, our faith would stay like this. Unless God allowed the difficulties of life to come. And we fall. And we learn to lean on Him. And we learn how to stand in His strength. And we learn how to walk. It's necessary. It's necessary. Peter tells us that in 1 Peter chapter 1. It is necessary that we suffer. There was an article I read this week. And I just thought this woman, uh, Jennifer Meyer, wrote it so well. I'm going to read it to you here. Because this is, I think, what we look at when we think about why in the world am I going through what I'm going through. It says, as Jesus walked toward the cross, we read in the Gospel of Mark how difficult it was for his closest friends and companions to accept his trajectory. They were looking for a leader who would triumphantly pull their community out of all its problems, freeing them from oppressive taxation, rebuilding the glory of the temple, healing the blind and the lame. They were betting on a winner. Over and over, Jesus gently introduces the idea that the path to life goes through death. That he will suffer rejection and pain. That his victory will be hidden. That his kingdom grows slowly and subtly. And only Mary, the sister of Lazarus, who poured expensive perfume on his feet, seemed to grasp this kind of counterintuitive, countercultural nature of his mission. Though we have a more robust story now on this side of the resurrection, remember he's alive, I still want a path toward triumph that skips the tears. Trials still surprise me. As if the way of the cross that Jesus walked should not apply to me. I'd like to fast forward through Good Friday and go straight to Sunday dawn. But until this world is fully and finally set to rights, God's people, even me and even you, must resist the lie that our lives should always be comfortable, pain-free, and popular. Where is Jesus calling you to walk this season that is costly or risky? Take some time right now to ponder Jesus' call to take up your own cross. Paradoxically, that is the path to life. Pour out your treasure and embrace a story with a better ending than anything you could dream. It was necessary that Jesus had to die in order that our sin might be born, that he might rise from the dead. It is necessary that you and I walk through at times paths of tears, that our faith might be strong, and that we might long for another world. So what's our response? What's our response to the fact that he did what he said he was going to do? 
He not only died, but he is alive. And there is a future, a future of hope, a future of victory, a future of promise. What is our response to a Savior who was delivered and died and rose again? Hear this, some of you, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 18. We have to respond. Paul tells us this. The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. What will you do with this message? Will you say it's foolish? Or will you embrace it as the power of God for you? The text just runs through a ton of different ways to respond. And in these last few minutes, just answer this. How are you going to respond? Some of you will respond in doubt. And to those who doubt, He shows you. Look at verses 10 and 11. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale and they did not believe them. How did they respond when they were confronted with an empty tomb? A Savior that they walked with saw Him die and He rose from the dead. How did they respond? It seemed like a fairy tale. An idle tale. Just keep in mind, Jesus told them this would happen. Like, literally told them it would happen. Like, the Son of Man is like going to die at the hands of the elders and the chief priests. He will be buried and He will rise on the third day. He said those very words to them and they still said, I think it's an idle tale. So some of us, when we're like, man, if I just like... If I could have just walked with Jesus, I would believe it. That's garbage. Our hearts are crazy messed up. Part of faith is believing what you cannot see. And that's just how it rolls. Jesus did what He said He was going to do. All the reasons I gave before are how He has shown us That he is not dead. He is alive. And if the 11, i.e. 12 and 1 rebelled, walked with him, and their result, when women came back after saying the tomb is empty, when their result was, I think it's an idle tale and I don't believe you, then you should probably not trust your skeptical heart as much as you begin to trust God's perfect word. And I say that as a fellow traveler with you, not as one judging you. God is not afraid of your questions. And He wants you to bring everything to Him. But I want you to know, He has shown you, doubter, skeptic, He has shown you in His Word, in history, He is alive. Death has been defeated. He is risen. Now to some of you, what is your response to the fact that Jesus had to be delivered, that He died a sinner's death even though He was perfect and that He rose from the dead on the third day? Some of you are hungry. Some of you are like, I want to know Him. And that's what we see Peter doing. Look at verse 12. 
Most of the 11 who followed him, remember there were 12, Judas rebelled, handed him over. Most of the 11 said, idle tale. And I don't believe you, but Peter, verse 12, there was a glimmer of like, I think this could be true. And what's he do? But Peter rose and ran to the tomb. I want this to be true. And so he sought it out. He ran. And he's stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves. And he went home marveling at what had happened. To those of you who are hungry, I encourage you, dive in. Run hard. Go after him. Open up the Bible and let his word speak to you. This week, I encourage you, pick up the Bible. You could start in the shortest gospel, the book of Mark. You can start in the book of Luke and just try to read and just listen. Look at it. Instead of approaching it with skepticism, just approach it with a sense of, this could be true. And let God speak to you. Hungry, seek Him. What about for some of you? You've experienced life and your life is filled with sadness. And when you kind of wrestle through all of these facts and you try to compare this idea that a man died thousands of years ago and rose from the dead and my whole life is supposed to be centered around him, it could be kind of filled with confusion. This passage talks to you, not just to the doubter, not just to the hungry, but it talks to those who are sad or to those who are confused. Look at verse 13. That very day, two of the disciples were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near. Hear that right there. The fact that you are here in this moment. I know you came yourself, but I believe with all my heart, it's God seeking you. You who are sad, you who are confused, you should see this passage and know what did he do for these sad and confused individuals? He drew near to them. Your presence here this morning is God drawing near to you, giving you a gift and a feast of his word and helping you sit underneath truth. It says in verse 15, while they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself drew near and went with them but their eyes were kept from recognize him, recognizing him. Why would that be the case? Well, what would have happened if they recognized him immediately? They wouldn't have had this conversation. <laughs> they would have just been like, "Woo, glory, you know. There would have been a lot of shouting going on. But what did we need to see? What did the followers need to know? They needed to know that Jesus wanted. He wanted them to come in all of their sadness and confusion and to just share. He wanted them to bring everything to him. And so look, look what happens. And so he just asks questions. He wants a dialogue. And he knows that just a flash in the pan, if he's there and they recognize him and he disappears, it'll be like, okay, did we really see that? No. Now they're going to walk with him for a while. They're going to spend time with him for a while so that this journey is etched upon the heart and it is cemented in the brain because 
Jesus knows. We're all weak. Our brains are a little fickle. So he says in verse 17, and he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? Keep in mind, Jesus knew exactly what they were talking about, okay? And they stood still looking sad, looking sad. This is to speak to all of those whose response is, I'm grieved. I'm grieved by the brokenness of my world. I'm grieved by the brokenness of my own sin. I'm grieved by unmet expectations. I'm sad. Verse 18, then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know these things that have happened in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped, here's where the confusion comes in. We thought it was going to go differently. We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it's now the third day. We thought it was going to be different. And moreover, verse 22, some women of our company amazed us and they said that the tomb was empty early in the morning. They didn't find his body. They came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And some of those who were with us, verse 24, went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, slow of heart to believe. Now here I don't believe he's calling them names. You fool. It's not what he's saying. He's saying, you who, are, you who don't understand. It's an idea of ignorance. Think of it as tender. You don't understand. Your heart's slow to believe. And so what does he do? He slowly opens up the Bible and walks them through. You can just see the patience. He says in verse 26, was it not necessary? There's our word again. Remember, Jesus must die. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses, that's the book of Genesis, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, beginning there at the beginning of his Bible. And then he goes to the prophets. And even to the Psalms, we'll see later, he interpreted them all the scriptures and said, this whole book points to me, to Jesus. But he hasn't done the great reveal yet. They're just like, it points to Jesus of Nazareth. And so as they drew near, verse 28, to the village which they were going, he acted as if they were going to go further, farther. But they urged him strongly saying, stay with us. It's toward evening and the day now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. And as they were gathered at a table, he took bread and he blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And boom, I saw. First of all, that's what Jesus does. He opens eyes. He opens eyes. And that's been my prayer. That's been my prayer for this moment. Is that your eyes would be opened. You who are doubters, you would just say, God, help me to know you. You who are hungry, you would go after him. 
and know that he will be found. You who are sad, know that there's an answer to your sadness. You who are confused, fall at his feet and ask him. Share with him all your confusion and your fear and fears and your tears and say, God, teach me. And watch him. Boom. Open the eyes. And he says, and they recognized him and he vanished. He vanished. Amazing to me. Just disappears. And they said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and those who were with him gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed, and he has appeared to Simon. Now, why in the world was that there? Because there's one more group of you that need to know. Need to know that the resurrection matters to you and you need to contemplate how you will respond. And it's those of you who are weak. It's those of you who feel beaten down and condemned by your own frailness and imperfection and the fact that you're just not as smart as your neighbor. The fact that you're not perfect. The fact that you sin and fall short of the glory of God. It's the fact that you aren't the Savior. When reality sets in that you are weak, what does the resurrection say to you? Well, to you who are weak, I want you to know Jesus intentionally pursued Simon Peter. What's so special about Peter? Why did he point him out? Because Peter was the one who said, I believe you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, upon this rock, upon this statement, I will build my church. And he says, Peter, you're going to be the leader of it. And then Peter says, I will even be so faithful to you that even if everything comes at me, I will go to death for you. And Jesus says, no, you'll deny me three times before the night's over. And Peter says, no way, no how. And what does he do? He denies him three times. Can you imagine the shame and the guilt? It says in the book of Luke that Peter went out and he wept bitterly because of his failures. What does the resurrection say to you and how do you respond if you are where Simon is? You should know Jesus is drawing near to you right now and he says, there's a song we sung on Friday night at our Good Friday service. It says, in my hurts, at my worst, when The world falls down, not for a moment will you forsake me. That is the good news of the gospel. In your hurts, at your worst, when everything seems to crumble around you, not for one moment does God leave you. And so he asks you, he asks you who are weak to just do this with your sin and say, Father, I have sinned against you and I need you to forgive me. He says, just give him. Just give him. Don't hold anything back. Be honest. And it's in your weakness, in your shame-filled life that he comes and he says, I love you. You know what is remarkable? Ten people hear this And say it's an idle tale. And I don't believe him. The one who's supposed to lead the whole ship. Denied him three times. And Jesus says. 
it's that bunch of ragtag, imperfect, doubting people that I'm going to use to build my church. Be encouraged. The resurrection says there's hope for me and you. The story doesn't end at the cross. The story ends with the resurrection and the future resurrection when he's going to come back. And until he comes again, he looks at every one of us, doubter, sad, confused, weak, and he says, I will use you to build my church. I will use you. You want significance, you want purpose, surrender everything to him and watch him use you. That doesn't mean all of you will become formal preachers. It means he will use you where you are. The last I checked, most lost people are not in here. They're out there. And so God gives you gifts and passions to use your life out in the world so that you will go and you will be a faithful representation of Jesus. You will love like him. You will grieve like him. You'll be honest like him. And you will come and you will share him as long as he gives you breath. And you will stop disqualifying yourself because we've seen who he uses. The resurrection gives hope today. That although we look at our sin, victory is the end of the story. The resurrected life, although we will all die, there is hope. Because for all who trust in him, death doesn't have the final word. He is alive. I encourage you. He did what he said he was going to do. He is risen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you are risen. You are king. You